Welcome to Step Into the Story. Incredible conversations of how the Bible changes lives, changes families, and changes communities across the globe. And here's your host, Phil Tuttle of Walk Through the Bible. Welcome to Step Into the Story. Each time we get together, we explore the intersection of God's story and our story. And we have a series of guests who open up their lives and share about that intersection of their life and how the Bible has changed so many things about their daily experience. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we first launched this podcast. Will you welcome with me my dear friend, the board chair of Walk Through the Bible, Dr. John Ish. John, welcome to Step Into the Story. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to join you today. So, John, you and I have known each other now for, uh, I guess, 30 plus years. And so the challenge is not in this conversation to figure out what to talk about. It's to limit it down to to the best parts of it and keep this to a reasonable length. I just don't I just don't know how we're going to do that. I would describe you as not only my board chair, therefore my boss, but very definitely a dear friend, a mentor in a lot of ways, an older brother and um, there is just no limit to the respect that I have for you and Mary and the gratitude that God has um, let you be a part of my life for so long. Recently, we had a guest on here um, named Ellen Vaughn, who wrote a book called Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, and um, it was just so fascinating. And what I'd love to do in our conversation today, John, is explore the topic of becoming Dr. John-ish. Um, I'd, I'd love for you to just sketch out for us kind of your early growing up years, your church background, and um, and then we'll we'll kind of take it from there. But can you just sketch that out for us first? Yeah, I would love to, Phil. I, well, it was a huge blessing in my life to be raised by two deeply committed Christian parents who had me in church whenever the church was open, and a good church that was conservative and fundamental, but loved Jesus and tried to live out the life uh, that he expected very diligently and I uh, from early on my dad was a uh, ran a one-room hardware store for 40 years and he had never finished the uh, finished junior high um, and kind of expected me to follow in his footsteps and uh, perhaps mid high school years he sat me down and said you know do you want me to save this place or you, or do you have other plans? Uh, the I think it was Western Auto that had just moved to town, and he saw that the future was going to change. And I knew without even thinking about it that that hardware business wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And through a series of explorations, and that was back in the days where you didn't have high school counseling, and all you had were role models. Right. And the, the man across the street was a pediatrician, and I went over and sat down with him, and he said, tell you what, young man, you come up and work in our hospital, and you'll know within a week whether medicine is for you. And that work included pushing gurneys and carrying bedpans and uh, lunch trays, and it was absolutely true. I knew immediately that medicine was for me. And it was, it was so good of God to give me his providential plan for my vocational life so early. 
And I knew before I got out of high school what I wanted to do. And when I got to medical school, I knew exactly the specialty I wanted to pursue. And so it was pretty, uh, pretty focused and great line. Mm. So I want to dive into that specialty because that's such a enormous part of your life. But before we go there, um, at what point in the story um, did God bring you and Mary together? And how did that happen? Uh, I think I was a, I met her for the first time when I was a sophomore in medical school at a common friend's wedding. And um, she wasn't converted at that time. But I took one look at her and I thought, wow. And I knew she wasn't uh, a, a follower of Jesus. And I thought, uh, that's the kind of girl I want to marry. And it wasn't long after that I learned that she did. And as a consequence, uh, um, I, I was in the, in the midpoint of my senior year as a, as a medical student. And I really became convinced that... Um, I needed a, a helpmate, particularly as I picked out uh, where I was going to do my postdoctor training, and I wanted the counsel of a godly wife, and God led me to her in an unbelievable way. That now, looking back, uh, we're 54 and a half years uh, knit together as one, and it was absolutely providential the way He brought us together and how she has met my needs and. The early years of our marriage, obviously, with training, were exceedingly difficult just in terms of the separation, the hours that we needed to be apart, and uh, her um, experiencing that loneliness and frustration. And But it, uh, our, our marriage withstood that well, and now it's, uh, it couldn't be better at this point. Mm, that's so great. And God's blessed you with some kids. Um, tell us about them real quickly. Yeah, we have three. Um, our oldest, Andy, is also in medicine. He's a general surgeon who does uh, both trauma and referred to the specialty of foregut surgery. Uh, he married Ani later in life because... Uh, he was so focused on medicine, he didn't take time. But they don't have children yet. Our middle daughter, Beth, married her college, sweet and college sweetheart. And he's a landscape architect. They live in Nashville, and they have three priceless kids. And our youngest, Katie, married her high school sweetheart that I had the privilege of lead, leading to the Lord. And uh, they spent their early years in education. He ended up uh, in the theological pursuits and in the pastorate. And uh, they have seven children, three of their own and four adopted Ethiopian kids that are just absolutely precious to us. Yeah. I just, I know your children as well and your grandkids a little bit, and it's just pretty awesome to see the legacy that that's extending on out. Um, that started mm. with God just bringing the two of you together. So mm. you knew early on, not just medicine, um, but that you wanted to be a heart surgeon. Um, why Why did you choose that? Uh, you know, I think in retrospect, um, it, it was it's an area it, that you can you very quickly see the results of what you do. 
I knew I wanted to be in surgery, but um, so many of the surgical specialties, uh, the the results of your work um, take a fair amount of time for them to be evident. That's not true in cardiac surgery. You know, uh, as you're closing the chest, how things are almost sure to work out. And that was very attractive to me. And also, uh, I think the Lord knew that he wanted to use me in medicine for more than just dealing with physical heart. And in that specialty, people are obviously very sick. And the risks of the procedures that uh, they undergo are significant. And so obviously that leads to real trust in you as their surgeon. And it opens doors immediately to share in deeper areas of their life other than just the particular medical problem that they had. And and that, that was precious to me, to mm. be able to get into their life and have them open up about where they were in their faith journey and where they hoped to head and to me to be real candid and truthful about uh, the, the simple realities of the gospel and its message and what Jesus said come to do in even in their lives mm. so it was an absolute joy and I, I think probably the third area Phil is that I, I didn't know it at the time but the way he made me uh, included the ability to um, to kind of visualize uh, things as to how they were and how they needed to be because much of cardiac surgery involves reconstructive things that uh, uh, procedures that need to be made quickly and expeditiously and, uh, and, and right appropriately. And I, I could, I just had that wiring in my brain and then my hands worked to be able to pull it off. That's amazing. That's All amazing. a good thing. Yeah. And I know you had a doctor early on who really took an interest in you and mentored you and um, gave you opportunities that quite frankly, a lot of young docs don't get. Oh, my word, yes. So this was in, you can believe it, a little town of 10,000 that I grew up in had a uh, clinic, kind of a mini Mayo Clinic that it was at that point 60 years old and had something like 80 specialty physicians. And he, the head of the group, was, a, was an old surgeon, and he took me under his wing and said, hey, come work here in the summers. And the second summer I was into the operating room and and by the time I was out of college, I had done more surgery than I would do for the next five years. It was, it was almost crazy, really. Hmm. Hmm. So yeah. eventually you end up um, Schumacher-ish, which is how many, how many cardiac surgeons are part of that, part of that group, John? Well, when he uh, we started with the two of us back in 1973, and uh, again, it was just the providential timing. Uh, the university, which had been the only big place that had done surgery, heart surgery here, began to fall on hard times. And because my original partner was a very well-recognized pioneer in the field and had been chairman of the department of, at the university for 20 years and just a big name around the globe, we immediately began to uh, fill that gap that the university mm -hmm. vacated. So quickly, we went from two to three to four, and uh, within eight years, I think we had uh, 
six guys. By the time I left, uh, uh, we had, and then we subspecialized about 15 years into the practice. Uh, we, instead of every one of us doing everything, and by that I mean cardiac, thoracic, and vascular, we hired our first vascular surgeon and broke off a division, thinking that that was going to develop into a specialty, and, and indeed it did, and then did the same thing with thoracic. So when I, when I finished, we had 37 cardiac, thoracic, and vascular surgeons. Wow. And that, that's, that's a lot of horsepower. That's a lot of ego. <laughs> Trust me. That's a lot of ego to keep going uh, down the runway in the same direction. Yeah, and I want to dive into that topic in a second. Um, you were also chief of surgery at St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis, which, you know, John, as you know, that place is dear to Ellen and me. That's where she had her infertility surgeries that resulted um, eventually in the birth of Emily and then later on three years later with Philip. So that's uh, – I know you've always viewed the OR as holy ground, and that place is holy ground for our family as well. Yes, I remember well. That was a, that was a joyous time. Yeah. Uh, so I've heard you describe yourself in your early career as um, your word, arrogant. Um, you just said there's a lot of ego flying around. I mean, I I can imagine to hold a human heart in your hand. Um, I mean, I don't think you ever had delusions that you were God, but there is a, there is a power that comes with all of that. Um, you, I don't think you were the same guy as I know now, at least not if you're being honest, describing yourself, but sketch out for us. What, what's the difference between now and, and early on? If, if, um, Help us go back in time a little. What was going on in your head and in your marriage back then? Well, you know, uh, we all come to Christ with uh, um, with a lot of baggage. And fortunately, mine wasn't in the area of evil habits and, and sinful patterns. But it was a deep-seated, um, I just thought it was self-confidence. And it, to a degree, it was. You know, you, you need to have a fair amount of self-assurance to do what we do, and particularly to, uh, to give patients and their families the confidence that this guy really knows what he's doing. But, you know, as God peeled away the onion, it, I saw that it was more, more than that. It, it was a, a deep-seated arrogance that, um, that I, I was really good, and from a, from a number standpoint, I was. I mean, that's how God made me. But I, I, my response to that was um, so inappropriate. And I remember, Phil, you know, as I began to get into the scriptures and see uh, what it had to say about uh, how subtle pride can be, I'll never forget one time I went into a, to a conference room to visit the family postoperatively, and you know they're because of the magnitude of the surgery, particularly back in the early days when it wasn't as common as it was now. And it was really innovative and unique, and the results were uh, had been poor, and then they began to be uh, much improved. I went into this, uh, to the uh, visitor's room, 
the consultation room and you know there were the usual 15 20 people and they you give them a summary of synopsis of how things have gone and what the prognosis is and and you walk out and they they treat you literally like god they do Mm. they're so appreciative and much of it's appropriate but when i walked out at one particular day it was like john this is not appropriate that you you're the the bible clearly says i remembered that verse from matthew 5 of uh, let your light so shine that they might see your good works but glorify your Father. And it, it was so clear to me, they're not glorifying God, they're glorifying you. And I had remembered all oh, how Hendrix had said, never work on commission. That's a very dangerous thing to do. And I re- remembered that uh, God himself said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. And at that point, I began to unpack how deep-seated my pride was that had spilled over far beyond the needed self-assurance and had become really I was so full of myself and I vowed from that point on I was not going to leave a consultation room without giving glory to God mm-hmm. and, and from that time all whether it was uh, uh, commenting to the families we appreciate your affirmation we did we have worked hard to get to where we are it's a big team effort but we need to thank the real surgeon here let's let's thank god for this and and if unless they were opposed to just bow our heads and thank him briefly for what he had done wow. and that helped me stay where i needed to stay in terms of uh, my proclivity towards pride mm. one of many could tell you many stories there. <laughs> I remember one of the stories that you shared with me was um, one of the maybe the first patient you ever dealt with who was HIV positive. Um, you remember that? Can you can you tell us about that? Because I think that was one of the turning points in you being more public, at least in your career and and with the team. Uh, about your faith. Can can you uh, unfold that story for us? Yeah, uh obviously I'll never forget it. I I can re- I can go right back into that very spot because it was so impacting, but it was at the very beginning of HIV and and this dentist, the local dentist had gotten a blood transfusion for an issue and developed AIDS and he was full-blown AIDS. And he was something like 50, and he needed a mitral valve replacement. And um, obviously, you know, if you get stuck by the blood of a patient with AIDS, that was a death sentence in those days. There was nothing to do about it. You were going to get AIDS and and not survive it. And I remember we used to have a, we called a morning report, where all the surgical team gathered in this large room and presented what was up and what, the consults that we had, and we'd, we'd share views as to what the care needed to be. And one of my more senior partners, younger guy, said, uh, presented this, the, the reality that we had our first AIDS patient. And uh, you could have cut the, cut the tone of that room with, I mean, it was like ice in there. Nobody mm. said a word. Mm. Nobody said a word because everybody understood that someone's going to have to, to risk it. And it was so clear. I waited a, a few moments, and it was just like John, 
the, the Lord saying, John, step up. You're the leader. This is your responsibility. I'll be there with you. And I said, okay, guys, this is mine. I'll, I'll be happy to. And then we had the, the word spread throughout the hospital that they were going to do an open heart on a patient with AIDS, and everybody knew the implications of that. You know, there are probably two in a mitral valve replacement. There are probably 200 or so uh, needle transfers where, you know, you hold out your hand blindly and the nurse slaps the needle or a scalpel in your hand and you never look. And uh, they're probably one out of 20 times when at the end of the operation you have blood under your glove, which means that the glove was uh, penetrated and, and you're risk. Uh, long story short, you know, even the orthopods, they, back in the early days when they were just starting joint replacements and they were using these moon suits, you know, literally yeah. they were astronaut suits with, uh, it was goofy. And the chair of ortho said, John, you, you need to do it that way. Um, and I, I very quickly said, folks, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it the way we always do it. We're going to trust God. But I got into the operating room that morning, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was like, um, oh, my word. It was deathly silent. And because heart surgery is very routine, the operative theater, uh, um, amazingly, is a very happy, uh, relaxed place. It needs to be. But that morning, there was nobody talking. And that's a team of probably a dozen people. And I walked in, finally scrubbed, walked up to the table. The scrub nurse was right beside me, a guy assistant across me. And I looked at the scrub nurse, who was our best. She was incredibly talented. And big old tears were running down her cheeks. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's, that's fear. And immediately, I just said to the entire team, the anesthesiologist, the pump tech, says, all the, the people in the room, uh, folks, I want all of you to come up around the table, and we're all in a precarious situation. We know that. We're going to do the job that we know how to do, but unless God protects us, we're at huge risk. And so let's just ask it. And it was deathly quiet. And I just prayed out loud through my mask, and I was earnest. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was for his protection. And at the end of that, prayer there were so many amens i thought i was in a charismatic church <laughs> and, and i wasn't I, I wasn't and you know from that point on the tension just evaporated we did our job without events the guy did wonderfully went home and uh, we we're off and served as a, as a model for future cases mm. so that's that's just so <laughs> encouraging the whole the whole mood of the room changed is what you're saying, oh, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. People were frozen. We were at huge risk because with that kind of tension, you make mistakes. You just do. Mm. You have to be so comfortable with what you do that it's just a second nature. It comes naturally. You do it all day, every day. Uh, it, that was not the case. Someone was going to get hurt and hurt badly. And God just cut it away because there was something about prayer that transferred trust and even many of these folks are not believers no question they weren't before they saw god in, in action at that day mm. well i want to continue this conversation there's so much more we want to learn about but i want to take just a minute now and um, let you know about a brand new resource from walk through the bible that's available and uh, 
We'll be back with continuing this conversation with Dr. John Ish in just a minute or two. Have you ever had a crisis of faith? Have your circumstances ever looked so hopeless you felt like God had abandoned you? Have you ever thought you had fallen out of God's favor? If so, we have a new Bible study from Phil and Walk Through the Bible titled Refuge, Finding Home in a World of Change. Refuge is a study of the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, and how God intersected their lives and wrote a beautiful story that echoes even today. Learn how Naomi had a crisis of faith and how God met her in her grief and changed her story. In Refuge, learn how God used a grieving widow, a faithful foreigner, and a man of standing to show us how we find our true home and refuge in him. You can find out more about Refuge at walkthrough.org refuge. That's W-A-L-K-T-H-R-U dot org slash refuge. And now, back to Phil. Well, welcome back to Step Into the Story with today's guest, Dr. John Ish. And um, John, let's let's continue that conversation about um, running parallel to your medical practice. Um, the church background that you were in um, has has lay pastors and lay preachers. And um, in the middle of all of those demands of you know, being a, a, a surgeon and being a young father and relatively newly married, um, your church came to you and asked you to take a leadership role there as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I, um, I was unprepared for that, although I must say, again, in, in God's divine design, I knew from the time I was in high school, sometime I would preach. It was, don't ask me how. I'm, seminary never crossed my mind at that point. But when the chief elder of the denomination in our area came to me and said, the local church has chosen you to serve as pastor, and my initial response was, no way. I can't. I don't have the bandwidth to do that. And he looked me right in the eye and said, so you want to be a Jonah? Oh, and great. it was, uh, <laughs> you know, just a, a knife in my, and so I went home and Mary and I got on our knees and prayed and it, God was so clear. He just it was so clear. He said, John, I know you don't want to do this. You need to. You need to give up something that's important to you. Mary and I were playing a lot of tennis. That was my one recreational endeavor. And he said, give that up, and I'll help you with this. And yet, uh, I knew the thing that troubled me the most. I, I was comfortable before the public and speaking, and, but, but our, our, our messages were all extra, extemporaneous. There was no preparation. Uh, the tradition had been that the Holy Spirit will... You come prepared with the Bible, and the Holy Spirit will unpack it in a way that will uh, edify and encourage the church. And yet, my training in my vocation was such that you never attempt anything that you're not totally comfortable uh, knowing that you can accomplish it, because that's the way you kill people in cardiac surgery. Pretty, pretty blunt, but that's true. But my immediately, that was my take. Uh, that if I was honest, yeah, I knew the Bible, I knew the Gospels, and 
I had read it every day of my life, but I really didn't understand the difference between Romans and Hebrews. And if I were to open up the Bible and have to preach from First Thessalonians, um, boy, oh boy, that was going to be a struggle. And it was immediate. Uh, I was, Lord, you're going to have to help me. How in the world can I get a, a seminary education while I'm working full time and trying to be a husband and a father? And he did. He did. And um, I, the, the, to be real candid, the, the person that helped me the most early on was Bruce Wilkinson, who yeah. I had gotten to know well at that time. And uh, and he said, look, John, um, if, if you're willing to invest, I'll help you with the right book. And we'll, God will provide the rest. And indeed, that was the case. I set the alarm clock every morning, regardless of what my night had looked looked like at uh, at five o'clock and from five to six thirty in the morning I was uh, studying theology and it was one of the greatest privileges of my life mm. and to be real honest Bill to, to sense the very real presence of the spirit in unpacking principles from scripture that came alive in an unbelievable way was uh, shaped the rest of my life. It mm. gave me confidence in the Bible and the challenge to live it every day, regardless of who I'm with or what the circumstance was, and it totally transformed my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think was part of God's agenda in that? I mean, by that point, you were having all the success on the career side of things, and it just it just seems not not cruel, but really hard to go back at something that you didn't feel a hundred percent prepared for. I mean, that that had to be really scary, but also probably pretty healthy for your relationship with God, right? Oh my word! It was the one of the most uh, beneficial things that I'd ever experienced, and to this day. It totally has made me who he had planned for me to be and how he wanted to use me. Uh, Another organization that was very helpful were were the Navigators. Mm -hmm. We had gotten involved with them, and some of their leadership came alongside. And whether it was understanding the practical principles of the Scriptures or uh, the importance of Scripture memory, I dug into all those things, and yes, it was hard, and it was uh, it, it was truly work. But you know how it is when you when you allow the scriptures to change your life. It was also life giving. It was it soon became went from drudgery and duty to absolute delight. I looked forward to it every day, and to be real candid, that same pattern continues to this day. It's uh, it truly is food and water to the soul and uh, it was um, it made me who I am today and I'm so deeply grateful mm. but it was it was it was costly back in those years yeah yeah a lot of sacrifice a lot of discipline a lot of mm. a lot of humility um, you know mm. and then God mm. I think really began to weave those two threads of your life together that you know, it it wasn't most of the week. I'm I'm 
a cardiac surgeon and then I'm, you know, pastor on the side. Uh, he, he really began to weave those together, especially with you and, and your associates, because this was not, you weren't moonlighting in secret to that, to that group. Um, what have you seen God do with your, with your team members, with the scriptures and with their own personal faith journey through the years? Well, the, um, oh man, I could go in so many directions there. You know, uh, back in the early days, I didn't have the freedom to um, select Christian cardiac surgeons. Maybe it was my faith was not uh, big enough, um, but from my grid, there just weren't that many back in those days. And and to, to think that they needed to be a Christian, it didn't even darken my mind. Not perhaps because my first partner was as far from Christianity as you could be. He's a wonderfully moral man, but not the least bit interested in, in, in Jesus. I tried to share the gospel with him many times, and uh, it just it, it, he was hard as could be. But I nevertheless, I, I accomplished, when we began the practice, he said, look, John, uh, it's yours. You design the structure of the practice however you like. Um, you design everything about it, and I'll help however I can. And so I had the freedom to integrate biblical principles into the structure of the practice and how I was going to treat the partners. And I recognized as soon as they, as we hired them, obviously we hired both competent and capable guys. And old, the same old mentor when I was in high school said, John, always be sure that, uh, that you can trust your partner with your wife and your wallet. Wow, And I kind of used that and selected really good guys. In fact, of the, we only had one divorce in our practice in all of those years out of 37 marriages. So God, God was good there. But I really began to live it out in terms of sharing, uh, sharing Christ with them and praying. But the third little, third leg of that stool was just trying to live it out before them. And um, I pray, I decided early on I was going to pray for every one of my partners every day by name. And I did. It took a while at the end of the practice, but we saw many of them come to faith. But in terms of impact, you know, it was the little things, I think, Phil, that made a difference. Obviously, I tried to be Jesus, I under, as I understood increasingly how the Scripture, uh, what it demanded of us and how to live but I, I would regularly, for the first guy that we hired, he was actually older than I, and he'd been on the faculty of uh, the university here. And I went to him and I said, well, you know, why don't you come join us? We desperately need some help, and I know you're, you would fit well. But he was basically, an, uh, I don't think he was an atheist, but he was an agnostic. And I would uh, uh, try repeatedly to share with him. And one day he came to me and he said, when, when I made some comment about Jesus, he said, John, do me a favor. Would you shut up about this of Jesus? He said, frankly, I know more about him than you do. Hmm. I grew up in a church and he mentioned the denomination. And he said, I know the Bible and I'm just frankly not interested. And I said, okay, well, I, I won't, uh, you won't hear it from me again. But regularly, I would need to sit down with him and ask his forgiveness. And I'd just do something stupid. It was never a big thing, but things that just bothered my conscience. Uh, I, it was uh, 
selfishness or a quick word or uh, just not being sensitive. I don't even remember the details. But for four or five times, I would ask him to forgive me. And, and the last time I remember, we were looking at cines. Cines are the movies that you look at that, that show you the, what the heart problem is and what you need to do to fix it. We were looking. We'd often do that together to get each other's counsel. And I, at that point, I said, uh, you know, there's something else all I need to ask you to forgive me for. And I'll never forget, he turned around in his chair and he said, John, I've never had any person ever in my life ask forgiveness of me. And you've done it repeatedly. What gives? And I said, <laughs> I'm not allowed uh, well, to discuss it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, do you really want to know? And it was like, you know, the fog lifted and he said, oh, it's that Jesus thing, isn't it? <laughs> and, you know, um, within a month, he came to me and he said, John, you know, uh, our daughter's Christine's getting married, and I don't know anybody that will pray at the wedding. Would you pray for our family? Mm. And so Mary and I were able to, it, it took our relationship to an entirely different level. Mm. So we saw many of those folks come to faith in Christ and really walk with him. One of the things that I prayed was uh, at the end of my career, we were in many sites, but ended up with just two big ones, the, the primary site and then a, a heart hospital that we built about um, 10 years or so before I uh, finished. And I prayed that the, the, the next chairman at both of the major sites, the, the leaders, would be sold-out believers. And, you know, Phil, I won't tell you the stories of how that happened, but they both did mm. in amazing ways, different ways. And they continued to live and walk with Jesus uh, and, and make decisions that are biblically influenced that I, I'm so thankful for. And so the legacy continues. And now I continue to meet it basically every week with one of the, the, the younger generations, basically the third generations of guys to started out as a uh, professional mentoring role, and now it's, uh, it's deeply spiritual. He's come to faith in Christ, and it's a beautiful thing. Mm. John, I am loving this conversation, and I everything in me wants to keep it going, but we're getting to the end of our time. One, one last question. Um, what would you say to um, maybe a younger man or woman or, or maybe not a younger man or woman, but somebody who hasn't had the discipline or the opportunities to, um, to really dig into the scriptures like you have. Um, but, John, I mean, it, it's hitting me the same way. I mean, I lead walk through the Bible, but as I listen to you, there's, there's something deep in me um, that says, I want, I want more of that. What would you say to a man or woman who right now is listening to this and, and they're saying, something's missing in my life. I, I want more of that. What would you say would be um, two or three good first steps for that person to take? Well, I, obviously you don't acquire uh, life-changing biblical realities by osmosis. It takes hard work. It takes initiative. It takes commitment. But God meets you more than halfway. If you just ask 
And we're to ask the Lord, help me, Lord. I really want to understand your word more completely. I want to become more like Jesus. I really do hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you promise that you'll fulfill me if that's the case. And he will. But it starts with, I remember uh, the old leader of the NAV some 40 years ago told me, he said, I, I, John, I never met a man who made a mark for God who didn't meet with God before breakfast. Hmm. And I, I adopted that. No Bible, no breakfast. And so before I have anything to eat, I would spend time with the Lord. And I don't want to be legalistic as to what that looks like, but I have some pretty strong opinions as to how it really does work. But it means, you know, if we really believe, Hebrews 4, that the Word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, when you pick it up, Jesus speaks through both the living letter of the Word and the Spirit within our hearts. And there's a sweet communion that goes on that He's deeply desirous of, of meeting with us. And to do that ruthlessly, consistently, uh, with a desperate desire to hear from heaven, he won't abandon our request. He'll meet us more than we can ever imagine. But the ball's in our court. He won't force-feed us as a rule. Often, in my experience, much of the early launch period comes out of need in our own life. Something's missing that we desperately need, and we go to God with a, with a plea, Help, Lord. I need you for a whole host of reasons. That was basically my uh, early journey. But it doesn't become long before that meeting uh, a, a specific need becomes a way of life that that's the most important nourishment we can ever uh, receive. Mm. God, God's faithful. He, he will do it. Mm. I cannot think of a better spot to land this conversation than right there. John, thank you so much. It's it's um, probably not an easy thing to do an angiogram on yourself, but that is exactly what you've done today as you've opened up your own life and you've let us see into your heart and uh, understand a little bit how God has worked with you. And wow, I just, I cannot overstate the encouragement that that is to me and I think for all of us who have listened today. You know, that's why Walk Through the Bible exists, is to come alongside people on that journey and provide the resources to uh, ignite that passion for God's Word if it's not already there, um, but not not just to start the fire, but to stoke it and to, to help spread that fire to others. And I'd encourage you to uh, check out the resources Walk Through the Bible has at walkthrough.org. And um, John, thank you so much for joining us on Step Into the Story. This is exactly the kind of conversation we hope to have every time we get together. And uh, everybody else, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time we get together. Thank you for joining us for the Step Into the Story podcast, powered by Walk Through the Bible. We'd love to hear what you think by giving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, don't miss a single episode by clicking the subscribe button. If you'd like more resources to help you explore and live God's word in your daily life, visit walkthrough.org. That's W-A-L-K 
thru.org. Walk through the Bible, take a walk, change the world.